Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and a very warm welcome to the Crash MotoGP podcast episode 30 with myself, Harry Benjamin, Pete McLaren and Keith Hewin. On the show today, I will be taking a look back and unpacking all the major news from the Jerez test. But before all of that, we are delighted to be joined this week by MotoGP technical director, Danny Aldridge. Danny, thank you so much for making the time for us, first of all. I know Keith and Pete have armed themselves uh, with a mirror out of questions for you but I'll try and ease you in with a with a first one and everyone knows listen to this podcast I'm actually a bit of a MotoGP newbie this has been my my rookie season so first question for you is can we just start by asking what the actual structure is for making technical regulations how do you come about with them to begin with how does it work very simply obviously we have what's called the GPC Grand Prix Commission so Comprising Grand Prix Commission is obviously uh, ERTA, Dorna, FIM, and the MSMA, the manufacturers. Uh, any of those bodies, including myself, can propose a rule. It can only be proposed. Uh, that will be submitted to the GPC. Uh, and if it's approved, and then obviously it goes into rule book. So my main job as a technical director is obviously, firstly, to control the rules. Uh, but during the year, many times I will make rules myself or propose a rule, a proposal. Uh, that will then go through that process, as I said, obviously. It would have to go, normally goes to the ERTA committee first. If they agree to my proposal, it's then forwarded to the GPC. Uh, and that body or organisation will say yes or no, basically. And if it's agreed, it's put in a rule book either instantly or it could be postponed to the following year, depending on what the rule is. It could be, okay, we need to do it from the next race, or it's a rule for next year, 2022. But mainly structure is the GPC will agree to any proposals, and if they are, will go through onto the rule book. It's a great system in as much as that the rule book is actually quite thin for MotoGP, isn't it? It's not, it's not a great big fat book of, of really tight technical regs. Yeah. Uh, it's getting bigger, unfortunately. That's the worst thing. Uh, if, if, if you remember Keith in the old days of the, the two strokes, it was literally just weight and fuel. There was nothing, no electronics, nothing like that. And it's going so much towards electronics, that side of stuff, the aero, which we already probably get onto. But yeah, it's it's thin. 
but I would like it thinner, to be honest. It makes my life a lot easier. Uh, the less rules, the, the better it's easier to control because that's a problem. But uh, if you go compare it to, say, like the FIA with Formula One, it's totally different. I'm sure they've got cyclopedias over there. But for us, it's not too bad. We're, we're, we're trying to manage it. Do the team self-regulate? Do the got, teams, is, yeah. is there like a whistleblower yeah. protocol? Is there something along those lines? Yes, always. I, I believe my organisation basically consists of myself and Jordi Perez, who works for me with the MotoGP, and then we have 20 local guides. But then I have a 1,000 people in the paddock who are looking at every other bike. So, yeah, and and you, the journalists, are just as bad. I'll get a phone call or <laughs> something like that. Is that you, correct? No, no. From that side. So you mean just I've got as eyes good. everywhere. Just you as mean good. Just Sorry, as good. Yeah. I have to say yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I would say every week someone will come to me and say, Oh, have you seen that? Is that legal? Is that right? So yeah, there's there's eyes everywhere in the paddock. You can't get away from it, can you? Well, you say that no. you know that sounds like an incredibly small team for for something yes. for such a huge task for for a world championship. How do you sort of battle you know against some of the the best brains? You're up against so many manufacturers, increasing you know more teams as well under the umbrellas of manufacturers. Uh, who who wins out at the end of the day? Ah. Uh, Hopefully we do. Uh, there's always <laughs> situations that crop up and their their job, obviously, the manufacturer, is to look at the rule book and try to find, not loopholes, uh, ways around the rules and make sure it's legal and stuff like that. So they they not don't employ people. There's always people saying, ah, but our interpretation of the rule is this. And this is my biggest problem, interpretation of the rules. Uh, the more black and white, yes or no, it makes my job a lot easier. But when it's interpretation, mm-hmm. oh, we believe is this, someone else will believe something different. So that's where the battles tend to happen in that area. But it's it's... We are always trying to catch up the manufacturers a little bit, especially in MotoGP, not so much Moto2 and Moto3, but MotoGP, they're always saying, okay, yeah, this rule, we believe it's this. Uh, and the clever ones do find ways around what we're written, and then we have to try and close that door later on. What's got through in past years that you you and the FIM and particularly Erta, what, what, what what's got through that you really wish you'd been across before it actually got to the track? Uh, honestly, aero. I think that's the biggest, biggest thing. It's aero, the aero packages. And I think, I know this is a big debate with your listeners. They were like, this is over the years. A lot of people, I'd say most people, hate it, really. But you do see it sort of filtered down slightly now in the production bikes, which is a different story. But what we've managed to do, because there was no rules for aero many years ago, about four or five years ago, and Ducati every week brought out a different fairing every single week new wings just added here and here and this was like oh hang on this ain't good uh but once someone's done something it's extremely hard for us to stop it because basically it's a rule change uh um, and we don't like to do that or dawn and earth don't like to do that if someone's found an area that is not dangerous so we say okay we have to then adapt to it but what we've done which i think is sort of semi-close the door is made it so that okay you only get one upgrade during the year so that's reduced the costs a lot where Ducati were bringing new shapes every single week so it's a compromise the sort of thing but honestly I would say aero would have been a lot better if we could have maybe closed the door a lot earlier but uh, but now I think it's sort of settling down a bit a lot more well is it because obviously next year you know you've got the likes of Ducati with eight bikes out on the grid and you've got you know, Suzuki with just a couple of riders out on the grid. 
that's obviously a bit of an imbalance regarding sort of data and, and technical. Well, just give us a clue, because even though I'm, I'm pretty close to this, I still don't get it half the time. You know I'm a bit thick, Danny. We've known yeah. each other for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've got, you've got eight eight We're bikes. the same company, don't worry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We've got eight bikes on the grid for Ducati. They've already got, it would seem, by the end of 2021, an advantage yeah. over everybody else. Now we've got this slight, and I mean, Dorna, Erta, FIM, particularly Erta and Dorna, have, have done s- such great things to bring yeah. it to such a competitive level where the entire field is covered by a second in qualifying. I mean, I've never seen yeah. it as good as it is, to be honest. And all of a sudden next year, it worries me, and I'm sure it does you from a technical department as well, that, that Ducati might just steal a bit of a march on 2022. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. And in the ideal world, Dawn and Erta's picture was always going to be 24 bikes, six manufacturers, four bikes of each, a factory and a satellite, okay? We've got that situation obviously with Yamaha, we've got it with KTM, we've got it with Honda. Uh, for whatever reasons, obviously, Aprilia and Suzuki are not in that position to supply a team each. So somebody has to take up that slack, shall we call it a little bit. Uh, if it, I, I don't know the reason why Suzuki have not been able to bring another or supply another team and the same Aprilia. If it's supply issues or the, they can't find a team that the contract was happy with or whatever, I don't know. But Ducati's philosophy is that they obviously, as you said, Keith, is that they, okay, we're happy to supply another team. Uh, we're, we're getting that feedback. And I'm sure there's obviously money involved. Let's be let's be brutally honest here. Obviously, I'm sure the teams are paying for that. So that budget will help develop the bike as well. So it's not the ideal situation, but we've got no choice in some respect. We need those teams to be supplied. Ducati or the manufacturers are, are stepping up to the plate and are willing to supply the team. So it's not a bad thing. Uh, I would hope and agree with all of you guys is that it'd be nice to have four and four of each manufacturer. But until Aprilia... I ha- can do this, or and Suzuki, we, we're going to have to say help, uh, say rely on Ducati to help us out a little bit. But is it making it imbalance? You could be right, but but then are they spreading themselves quite thinly? And what development wise? Because there's always different specs of that Ducati. If you take last year, only a few of them, three of the bikes, had the full factory spec, which was Zarco and the two uh, factory bikes. The rest were lesser specs. Pete, I know you've got lined up. I, I can talk for a bloody month, as you know. So <laughs> I'm going to back up just a little bit here. Fair no, I just, um, Danny, one of the big successes that your technical guys have had in recent years is spotting the Yamaha valve difference. Now, you know, you mentioned the, the whistleblowers, things like that. I mean, without going into specifics, I mean, are these kind of checks where you know, you actually send parts off to be analysed. Is, is that now standard procedure? You know, will that happen with the 22 engines? Is that is that the level of checking that you put all of these parts through now? With Yamaha, I mean, not to go too much detail, Yamaha, just respect them. It, it, it was never caught with Yamaha. Yamaha came forward uh, and they were literally above uh, the left, the one's not, not the right word, but they said, okay, this is what we've done. This is what we believe is right. And that's where the incident happened. So it was never a case of Yamaha was saying, oh, you're in trouble, we've caught you doing it. It was Yamaha coming forward. So it's slightly different. But from that situation, we have now put what's called in place is a standard checking plan. 
which we've started to implement this year, it's actually set last year now, but in 2021, is that we are now sending engines to be checked, uh, fairings to be 3D checked, wire harnesses, everything like that. So, uh, and that happened this year. Uh, we stripped one in spec of every single manufacturer that year, sent off to university to check the material, the harness, the dimensions, everything this year. And the manufacturers have been really positive of this. They've been really helpful. Uh, it's very expensive for them because these parts are being destroyed. Uh, and I don't actually know, and you guys might, Keith might know a bit more than me, but in Formula One, I don't even think they do this in Formula One, where they literally say, okay, we had it this year. Okay, I so said that engine, when it's end of life, that's been chosen to be checked. Now, you can withdraw that at any point, uh, and we would then say, okay, these parts would go to this university, these parts would go to this university. It will be dimensionally checked, it will be material checked, hardness checked. Uh, and if all, if all's okay, then fine. If not, the engine will be disqualified. Uh, And presumably everything that it had to do with that engine will be um, lost in that situation, would it? Yes, yes. There's some parts that go back that they can... Sorry, after it's been checked. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. some parts are destroyed, yes. Some parts they can reuse. But uh, what we do allow is that they can reintroduce an engine at a certain life for mileage for that. So they don't actually use, lose the engine completely. Time frame, Danny. One of the things that, that obviously is critical for any new developments and the like, I'm a little bit surprised. I mean, you, I don't know whether you listen to the old podcast, and I wouldn't blame you if you didn't, but the point being is that uh, <laughs> um, I've been a bit concerned about the, the amount of time that these teams have to get through all of their two years' worth of tech freeze and all the new yeah. stuff that they've got coming up for 2022 i mean they've just had a, a couple of days at the the, the Madalinka, whatever it is circuit the you know the, the, even a new track that they've got no data on which really from a test yeah. point of view is not really that helpful i'm surprised that you kind of not allowed them to a, a little bit of leeway into the first couple of grand prix because it will cut off won't it in in qatar that will be the end of you know they run what they brung after that yeah but that's that's been like it for donkey's years in some respects uh and don't forget in the past we we had mid-season tests we obviously had Mizano this year where you saw the pretty the initial 22 bikes uh so it's not like they come to obviously they're in Jerez this last week uh and that's the first time they've been testing these bikes already so uh and we all testing agreements are done with talking to the manufacturers so it's not a case of we say no that's the law we talk to them and we listen, as I say, we, Erta and Dorna, obviously. And and we work very, very well together to work out the testing plan, what everybody wants. It, it's all an agreement. So I'm sure if the manufacturers come back to us and say, look, sorry, we need a bit longer, we would accommodate it. So it's it's down to them as well to come forward. But I think they're happy. The concession systems work really, really well, hasn't it? I mean, for, for most of the, yeah. the, the teams, that's worked brilliantly well. Um, yeah. Aprilia, though, I mean, looking at Aprilia, they've done, they've still got concessions. They've been working through through that during the course of the year. But do you feel that there's going to be a massive catch up come 2022? Are we going to see real developments? Are we going to see really different motorbikes, different bits and pieces arrive on the plot come come next year? Uh, no, I don't think you will because I think 
now the bikes are so well developed and it's just that little two or three percent that makes a difference. You said at the beginning of this that MotoGP now is so much better than it's been over the years. And sorry, Keith, go back to when you used to race. What was the gap between the first and 15th in qualifying? It was probably about five, six seconds, maybe more. Uh, more. It was actually talking, more than yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. You actually so had lapped riders in, back in the day. Yeah, yeah. And now what we have is obviously we have the, the 15 in a second. So even for Aprilia that had concessions, they just got to find up 1% or 1.5% to go that little next step. So you can't reinvent the wheel in some respects. That the bikes now are direction because that works. That's the way to go. Uh, I don't think you see... But going back to concessions, Aprilia yeah, next year, which basically means they can, uh, testing-wise, they can use their... until they lose concessions. So... They could obviously have, they have 97 for the other manufacturers. The, and the biggest to me is that that engine spec can be different every time they bring. And the first engine could be one spec. The second engine up to the ninth, completely different. Uh, where the yeah, manufacturers go to right, stop. That's your spec for that rider for the whole season. So, difference. Like again, talking about Formula One, One they don't have that sort of which may be able to help them a little bit. I don't no. know. It's a lot of upgrades for them, but it definitely when, helps them make it forward. When teams have got a tiny new idea, I mean, I've seen you wandering up and down the paddock many, many times, you know, with bits and pieces under your arm and papers flying around everywhere. When somebody's trying to, how should we say, circumnavigate the um, book, um, trying to work their way around it. I mean, what's the process in that situation? Do you know? what's being pushed as a, as acceptable well in advance or do you suddenly suddenly does it suddenly appear in the paddock and you go hang on a second and everyone's on your case the journalists and other teams they're on your your case to sort it out i mean do do they approach you for what they think is an appropriate within the rules modification yeah 90% of the manifest to me first and show me this is what they're proposing is it legal some will think again their opinion, and this is where sometimes there is a as a rule now. They all I always say to them, the philosophy is if it's legal, I say nothing. I will tell you, but I then say I then tend to put it out there so no one else makes the same statement. So okay, if we think it's within the rules, okay, well done, congratulations, but oddly I say nothing. If it's illegal, okay, sorry guys, now we don't agree with this. It's like the guidelines we have the arrow error package anything that's i deem is not correct it goes out to every manufacturer i don't say who thought of the idea but it, everybody's aware of it so they all know they're going in the same direction but uh mm. there are some manufacturers that think okay let's we believe this is correct but now they're sort of to understand a little bit more it's better to talk to us get approval and then they've got no problems Danny, so we're, one of the big developments, we've seen fairings and then we've seen ride height devices. Now, it, it used to be just a very small sentence, I think, in the rules that said nothing electronic. Yeah. It's been expanded a little bit. Could you just sort of explain yeah. what teams can do and what they can't do with these ride height devices? Okay. Uh, as you say, it's it's definitely got probably the next step from aero packages, what the teams are going towards. But very simply, as you said, 
it can't be electronic. So it has to be rider input, rider control. It's simple as that. Uh, I've actually got a rule book here, but just to probably easy to read it out. Uh, Passive determined by forces displacement directly transmitted by mechanical hydraulic connections. Uh, for example, according to the above, ride height systems that operate on collapsible elements that collapse extend under the load they are subject to and are locked and unlocked by the rider, which is the important point, and or by mechanical triggered locks are allowed. So if you take, for example, obviously the uh, start procedure, uh, what, what you call it now, um, Sorry. Whole shot. Whole, whole shot device. Whole shot. That's it. Sorry, brain fade. The whole shot device. Obviously, it's engaged by the rider. Obviously, you see him on a grid when he comes to engage it, puts the lever down. It's all mechanical. But as he gets to the first corner, the force of the brake releases that mechanism. And to be honest, ride heights works the same sort of way as that. But it You've got a problem there, though, in a, in, a, in a safety type of issue, haven't you, really, with... with... You know, the release mechanism, if it wasn't to release in some way, I, I remember hearing from the paddock that Suzuki weren't going to use it in a couple of places because theirs hadn't yet been developed to quite the same as, as yeah. some of the other teams. And as much as that, if it didn't release and you're ch chucking it into somewhere like Cavone, for instance, turn 11 yeah. at Mizano, you know, if it didn't release when they dropped in there and you got your ass dragging on the floor with the right eye adjuster still sitting down, that could um, be catastrophic. I mean, is there a? I can't imagine there is a mechanism for you as a technical director to be able to oversee or put a, a protocol in place that guaranteed the safety of something like that. Or is there? No, no not at all. And it, it, it's the same as a throttle. As you know, the old days, a throttle gets stuck open. You, you got the same problem. Uh, and if the brakes fail, it's the same problem. Uh, I, I think we we try to police as much as we can. And it's again, it's it was one of those areas of the rule book where we didn't see this happening a little bit like the fairings and the teams or the manufacturers exploited this so we just have to control hence why we put that new section in the suspension and dampers in the rule book uh, to control to understand what is allowed and what isn't but uh, you imagine again, if you knew everything you know now you could have built a hell of a motorbike danny <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I'll be a very rich man. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's <laughs> almost as rich as Keith. <laughs> <laughs> I've got four That's children. It, yeah. There's nothing rich about yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah, okay, fair enough. But, uh, yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's one of those, the, the talking point of this season, for sure, and how they work and what it considers as automatic and, and, and not. But the important thing is that what I tend to do, and I have seen – all of them is literally going to the pit box and said, okay, disconnect all electronics, show me how it works. It must be able to engage and disengage without any power going to it, any electronics. And it has to be that it's in that position where it, it doesn't need to be charged either, even by air, gas or fluid. So it's basically can, 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 see, can keep going all the time. So they don't have to recharge it when they come back after each session because that's not allowed. It has to be in its own position. I can see why that rule book is getting thicker. <laughs> yeah. You got you mentioned the rule book is a lot thinner. It's a lot thinner because the, it used to be in French as well. So technically, it should be twice the size. <laughs> <laughs> That's why it's got thinner. It's only because we're taking out the French. 
<laughs> yeah. Oh, brilliant. Um, Dan, we had a few listener questions coming as well, sort of on, on different, a few different tangents, but sort of all, all linking together as well and looking at, at what's happening post the uh, the technical freeze and especially all the, the new winglets we've yeah. seen pop up on, on various bikes this year. Um, and Eggy has asked, what is the difference between the MotoGP wings that were banned two years ago and the ones that we have now looking especially at the Aprilia, they seem to be sort of just as, just as harmful. They, what we, what we can, so we actually call them side pods because they must return. Okay. They can't right. literally go directly out and have literally single planes, shall we call them. They have to return back in the bike. There is a, a minimum size that that return has to be. And Aprilia have just gone to the complete limit of what is considered safe. So they've gone to think, I understand the, what the, your viewer says. I agree that they're, they're sort of getting more and more to what they used to be like. But what we don't allow is we call, uh, strides coming out or fins, shall we call it. There's no fins out the side. It has to be go out, if you can see, and go back in. And that's what we see. The original Ducatis, there were fins sticking out everywhere, all over the place. What happened? Uh back in the day to, to, I mean, there were a lot of rider complaints about the amount of air that was being moved around them. And I, I remember, I think it was Bradley Smith at um, Phillip Island particularly yeah. was quite, quite vocal about it. I mean, well, it, it, does that yeah. still, do, do riders still mention how much this, the, the aero is affecting them on a motorbike or has that sort of gone away? Not to me directly. If they do it in the uh, safety commission, I don't know, but no one's come to me because if it, honestly, if, the safety commission and the riders, which is purely the riders and Dorna and Mike Webb and Lois Caparossi and Franco and Chini, if if the riders say, look, hey, I'm having problems, there's turbulence, there's bike, then I'm sure Carmelo will come to me or us and say, look, okay, now, now it stops. When there's a safety issue, that's the only time us as the organisers can overrule the manufacturers. We can say, okay, we are banning this for safety. And that's the clause we have. Okay. Um, in terms of the, and this is just, I suppose this might be purely for, for my benefit and hopefully our listeners as well. In terms of the, the technical freeze, it's, it's a subject we talked about all year long. And obviously that was slightly elongated through through COVID pandemic, but that is obviously coming to an end um, in 2022. What do you think that might do in terms of the competition that we're currently seeing in the field, because, you know, looking back at this season, it's been immense in terms of, you know, uh, the amount of manufacturers and different teams scoring podiums, front rows and wins. Yes. It looks like Ducati are certainly coming on strong towards the end of the season and going into next, but do you think that it'll be the, the, the technical freeze will favor certain manufacturers over others, or do you think it might allow for more of an even playing field? Or do you think it's a danger of actually sort of, taking the competitiveness that we've seen this year away? I'm, I'm hoping it will allow the other manufacturers to catch up because obviously Ducati have made big strides. Uh, you look at the last race in Valencia, the top three. Uh, now that the other manufacturers can now start developing their engine spec for next year, uh, they can upgrade their aero package as well. So let's hope that that will happen and we'll keep the field close together. Uh, it could obviously go the other way, where Ducati could then make another step, uh, as Kiva said, with eight bikes. But the aero package is, in, if we talk about that, is obviously per rider. And I don't think any manufacturer could have that luxury of making a, an aero package defined for each rider. Formula One car is very 
two dimensional. It's, it's like this with the bike. It's the angles that they do. It's 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 very hard, and every ride is slightly different. But uh, going back to your question, I hope that it will give the opportunity for the Honda. And I think you probably saw it more in Jerez last week, where pole was badly beat up from what happened in Valencia. But even he said that the Honda seemed to make a big step with what they brought out. They brought out a new aero package. If you saw that as well, new side pods, winglets. So that seemed to push them closer to Ducati. Just clear up for me just one thing, and it's something I know I should know, but, you know, again, I've not been there for a week. Um, all the Ducatis, all of the motorbikes, is that a separate aero um package for each rider can 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 we have eight different aero packages for for the eight different ducatis for instance and how does that swap about how do they relate with each other yeah basically yes they can the rules allow the aero package which is different engine aero package is per rider basis so each rider can have their own design if they want to it doesn't happen in the one state very rarely what you would tend to find with ducati is that the satellite teams will have the previous year's version. So they filter that down. But as a rule, it's purely per manufacturer. But the rules do allow it if, if they wanted to. If a rider is too big, they can make slight changes to it, and it's for him only. Yeah. But, and is that are those changes, when you say slight changes, so you can make slight modifications within the rules, but what about changing that aero package is it still one time during the year that you're able to change it i seem to remember for per rider yes if we if we start from next year 22 we go back to the pre covid rules so yes the normal rules are you start qatar or the first event if it's qatar which it should be that they have to present that aero package for each of their riders uh and then they'll add one upgrade during the year the aero package is split into four four areas as well remember that four areas which is the fender, those four areas again, fairing, old geezer. Yeah, you have the front fender, the the main fairing as we call it, uh, area A, which is where the spoon is, that area at the back underneath the wheel, and then what we call others, which is basically fault covers. So they can upgrade each of those once per year. Do you actually sleep at night, Danny, or are you dreaming about this all night long? Unbelievable. <laughs> Uh, I actually, you know, I, I'm, I'm very lucky. I do sleep very well for, for some reason. I'm not quite sure, but uh, <laughs> it, it, it does great in a lot of people I work with because I do sleep well. But uh, I think uh, gin and tonic helps. <laughs> a good eight hours always. Um, Danny, yeah. looking looking a bit more into the future, um, and we've debated this time and time again. We we talk about Moto E, and we have a lot of questions coming in as well. Looking at, at sustainability, Keith doing the eyeballs for those watching uh, on YouTube. Um, uh, and we look, of course, you know, most GPs are world championship and we are always looking to become more sustainable and, and greener. Um, hybrid systems, e-fuels, is, is that something you're starting to look at into going into the future? Uh, we are definitely going to biofuel. Uh, this is something that Dorno is working very hard at the moment with uh, Corrado Ciccinelli. He's the director of technology and I work very close with him. Uh, and he's a great guy to work with and he's pushing that forward and we're hoping hopefully by 24 to have a mixture of biofuel in, in the championship so that's definitely the way forward for us Is there any collaboration between you and, and F1 technical? Do you, uh, do you collaborate in any way whatsoever? Is there any kind of conversation that goes on between the MotoGP rulemakers and, and F1 guys? 
No, not with me personally. The FIM might have some sort of collaboration, but not me personally, no. no. Okay. Um, we've had uh, a one a very uh, important question, actually, which we might just have time uh, uh, to squeeze in because we are running out of time, unfortunately. But um, Ian Duffers has asked, is your golf swing still bad? <laughs> it, it's actually got worse with old age. <laughs> yeah, You're not using the right clubs, yes. you know, technically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but, uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> well, that's a, that's, that's a crash actually, exclusive. By the way. Yes, thank you, Ian, for uh, for messaging in. He's part of our. He's, he, he was part of the listener question, so we've got a listener there. Uh, that's, that's one yeah. at least. So uh, we're doing well. Um, <laughs> we can do it, but actually, we can do without him. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 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 Didn't mean Ian finished. Is he a heckler, not a listener, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, Danny, look, I know we, 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 there's so much more we, we can talk with you about, but I suppose, you know, one one final question for you, um, and or if Keith and Peter have something desperate, feel free to tuck that in after. But, um, you know, what, what are you most looking forward to for 2022? Uh, norma- normality, really. Getting back to, honestly, mm. getting back to a bit of normal life in the paddock because... Dorna and Erta have done an amazing job over the last two years to have 15 races in 20 and 18 this year. And I know what they've had to do behind the scenes to organise those races. It's not been easy. Uh, And I think it's with the COVID and the sad situation we're in in the world, I think it was a little bit of... uh, a time that people could get away from it and watch bike racing. And we've had some amazing bike racing over the last two years. And I'm sure it's helped a lot of people. It sounds a little bit gushy, but uh, I must obviously thank Dorna and Erta for what they've done over the last two years to just keep this championship going. It's not been easy, but uh, 22, let's hopefully, let's continue the good racing we've got. Hopefully we have as close as we've been having and we get uh, a safe full season. I think we'll all be hoping for that as well. Well, listen, uh, MotoGP Technical Director Daniel Aldridge, thank you so much for, for taking the time and, and joining us on the Crash MotoGP podcast. We'll have to catch up with you again next season as well at some point. Yeah. Uh, but for now, thank you so much, Danny. It's been my pleasure. Take care, guys. See you soon. Right. Well, uh, what a great, what a great time to be joined by by Danny Aldridge. So we do bring you all the best guests in the off season. Don't go anywhere. We're regular until the end of November, and we're still going to be with you all throughout the off season. And we've still got more to chat about, haven't we, boys? Because uh, there has been uh, some testing going on. Of course, there's still some action, um, some hidden liveries, some new prototypes uh, and riders uh, going around Hareth for some testing. Uh, Pete, perhaps if we come to you on this first, uh, you've been uh, keeping us up to date on Crash.net with everything that's been happening. What, what's been catching your eye at the moment? Can you give us a little bit of a, a summary as to, to what's been going on over these test days? Yeah, sure. So, the, the, I mean, the headline lap time was was Banyaya, yet again, continuing this form that we saw in the, at the end of the season. Fastest for, for most, most of the last day, he was fastest by almost a second. And then, uh, you know, the others closed in to be just under half a second from him, Fabio Quattararo. But some more Ducati domination, shall we say, at the end of the season. And then you had a bit like Danny was speaking about, Honda, we saw again, have bought this all-new bike, two slightly different versions. I think they had a slightly different engine in in, in each of the bikes that they made available to Pole, uh, Espargaro, and then the LCR riders, Nakagami and Alex Marquez. And that that seems to make have made a big step, certainly in, in the area that, that they're looking for, which is rear grip. So that was quite encouraging for them. Um, on Yamaha's side, 
yeah, not so encouraging from from Quattararo. He was saying that the bike was basically the same. Now that's that's quite a surprise because they've got really one chance left, which is the Sepang and Indonesia test. Because after that, you're going into the race weekend in Qatar, and as Daniel was saying, everything's locked down then. So you know you, you've got to test your engine before then, and, and the last chance will be at Sepang now. So I think Fabio, you know, he he said at Mizano that he was hoping, or really hoping, I think was his words, to have some horsepower at this test, and it didn't arrive. He said the bike was basically the same. He didn't really feel much difference. So, yeah, I think, you know, there was no guarantees of what's to come. He's just sort of crossing his fingers, it seems. So a bit of a surprise there. Um, over at Suzuki, we've seen similar, well, heard similar comments, haven't we, from Fabio and from Mia, that they're worried the bike is dropping back from the Ducati. And we saw that uh, at Suzuki, they made a big push. I mean, that they brought not only Sylvain Guintoli, but also the Japanese test rider, Suda Roba. Now, I, I can't remember the last time since COVID started that, that a Japanese test rider was flown over to a European test. So, you know, that would be quite a good statement. And bear in mind, there was also a lot of new parts as well, chassis, engine, aero, all these kind of things. You know, so Mia, when he walks in the garage, He's seeing all of these test riders. He's seeing all of these new parts. You know, it's a, it's a it's a good sign because that's what he wants to see. He wants to see a big push on the technical front. Um, you know, he was cautiously optimistic. I guess is how you would describe Mir. Uh, a pretty, as we say, a bit of a unique situation because they they have concessions, so they can keep developing their engine during the season. So they're not in such a rush. Um, Vinales was working on braking setup, that kind of thing. Um, and KTM, well, if you look at the timesheets, they were the one that was sort of hanging back the most, if you like, you know, a lot of different parts again, but it seemed like from what Oliveira was saying, all of these parts are being tried separately. They're yet to sort of put everything together into one package. So again, Sepang is going to be a big test for them to kind of see if they've changed the character of the bike. So I guess in a, in a nutshell, that would be, that would be what the test showed us. I don't get it. I have to say, <laughs> I don't get it. I know I'm renowned as being a little bit on the thick side, but You've got all this stuff that's got to be tested. You're going to a track you've never been to when you go to Mandalay when you go to Indonesia to test there. So you're going to have a couple of days testing at a track you've got no data on at all. So you, you've got no real idea. You've got no no baseline. Perez this week was windy, really windy. So it was a difficult test. They're nowhere near going as fast as say Maverick Vinales's outright circuit record, despite the fact that, that you know Bangaya might have been a second faster than everyone else, but due to the conditions. You know, it wasn't conducive to going really, really quick. And to test the backload of stuff they've got. I mean, Yamaha back foot again. When I read that about Quattararo saying, well, there's no difference. You just think, what? They're, they're going to rely on Sepang, which will be like the Sweat Olympics again. When you go to Sepang, Ooh. you know, you could have a thunderstorm. I mean, I know it's not the time of year for thunderstorms, but, you know, we're talking about Southeast Asia here. It, 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 it can blow in. You know, you can have an unfortunate week where, where the rains are there. So I don't get it. I mean, I, I just normally I would say that, that MotoGP run this really, really well. But to, to and Danny, you know, obviously there's been no you know no approaches yet by any manufacturers to, to Danny and uh, Erta and the FIM and, and of course Dorna um, to extend the time into the start of the season. But I can I can genuinely see that happening. I mean, Yamaha otherwise are going to be right on the back foot. You know, Ducati the floodgates are open with Ducati. They're bringing little bits all the time. They've got, they've got eight riders out there. They've, they've, you know, they've got everything they need to test more and more and more um, during this off season when they're allowed to test it, but it's still not enough time. And if we are unfortunate and the weather is against for whatever reason, that, that test time is going to be eaten into even more. 
know, Jerez wasn't a perfect test for not for a lot of not a lot of teams. I mean, not only not having everything they needed there. Manufacturing timelines, if I remember rightly, correct me, Pete, if I'm wrong here, but I seem to remember when the Patronus team was was being what's the word projected, if you like. Um, they needed June the 25th is in my head was the cutoff point for engineering the bikes for the next year. So June the 25th, middle of a year, was was what they needed as an engineering timescale to get their the second team's factory bikes prepped, machined, worked on together for the following year. So the, the timescale for the, the forward link to, to all of this stuff is is so far in advance. To hear that Yamaha have not even got <laughs> something to be trying this week, uh, last week, sorry, uh, Hareth, it blows me away. I got to say, I don't, I don't genuinely understand it. If it feels almost like Ducati come twenty twenty two are going to have such a technical advantage and such a testing advantage and such a rider advantage. Um, this, the only thing that gives you real good hope, isn't it, is the fact you know the rules are so good now. They're so tight without these little things like Danny was saying about the ride height. You you got him on the ride height thing. He, he didn't want to have <laughs> like the seamless gearbox, like aero, the ride height adjustment. That's the, that's the third big thing that snuck up on the rule makers that the manufacturers have bunged in there um, that have kind of wrong footed everybody. I, I bet if you'd knew that was coming beforehand you would have banned it <laughs> so it wouldn't have been allowed um but of course once one manufacturer does it and, and gets it on the track um then everyone else is bound to i always used to like the phrase from danny when i used to chase him around the paddock and say yeah what's happening with this what's happening with that technically and he used to turn around and say to me if you see it on the track it's legal <laughs> that was his <laughs> if you see it out there it's legal in other words don't keep bothering me with all these little details because i think everybody yeah. else is bothering him and because i've known him for so long i can walk in his office and ask and that's never the easiest thing for a technical director when he's trying to keep um, everything under control and of course keep it confidential i mean the one thing i think that's where danny is he's, he's such a wonderfully personable guy mm. and, and he's been a friend for a long time and his dad was a friend before him obviously from, from my perspective and and yet he never gives anything away because that's not the way it's done he's a, a consummate professional um and and of course you would you would never compromise your friendship with a with a man like danny to to um, try and get that inside information because it would be the last piece of information and probably the last time you had a friendship with him <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just think this testing, this I just think this testing thing has got away a little bit, and I think the Yamaha are on their back foot. They are now going to have to force so much stuff through for next year, Pete. But, it, but isn't it surprising, Keith? Because you think, look, the last time they were allowed to change this engine was eighteen months ago, wasn't it? So, what's been happening in the engine department since March twenty twenty in Qatar? You know, how can there not be any developments? Is it that? That I mean, Gigi. To rewind a bit, Gigi Dalinia had a bit of a, a Zoom call with the media on the on the eve of this test, and he was kind of asked, "Well, look, because there was this tech, technical freeze on the engine, did you move people to the chassis side? You know, did you reallocate things?" And he said, "Well, no. You know, you have your engine team, and they're specialists. You have your chassis specialists. You have your aero guys." And then he said, "We've just continued normal development, and and I'm sure all the manufacturers have done that. So, you know, did the valve issue that Yamaha had?" Is that what their engine guys have been, you know, preoccupied with? Certainly last year, you know, trying to get those engines. They had, what, three engines each, didn't they, to try and last the season? And then they've had to try and 
we'll do a workaround probably for this season without changing the inside of the engine. But engine, you know, I mean, for sure we know they must have been doing something. But when you're coming to, as I say, well, as you say, Keith, basically the penultimate test, really, because you can group Sepang and, and Indonesia together as one test, can't you, technically? Because it's so close. As you say, there's no time to to pop back in the week in between and come out with a new engine. So, you know, what, what's been going on there? And perhaps most worryingly, does, is Quattararo in the loop on all this? Because he's going to be pursued by all of the factories, isn't he, next year? And if he's, you know, he's going into to the new year thinking, am I going to get a new engine? What, what's it going to be like? What's happening? You know, he's talking about hoping that there's new parts for Sepang and things like that. Well, we know the first contracts, they tend to be done as early as January. You know, they'll be signed. I mean, it's it's not the time to to have your star rider sort of unsure of what, what's happening with bike development. I mean, I'm sure he would have told us if he said, look, okay, there was nothing here, but Yamaha have told me, you know, Cal's working on this maybe, you know, and it, it's under development and we'll have it for Sepang. There was none of that. He he didn't seem any, any the wiser other than, what we have, which was the chassis and the aero, didn't make much difference and we're still waiting on the engine. He's not just a star rider, Pete. He is the Mark Marquez of Yamaha. There was no one else in that manufacturer doing anything. You know, it's it's only him for Yamaha and obviously Mark Marquez previously for Honda. It, I, I just, I, I think it's a, a it's a tricky time that, that, having said that, Yamaha have won everything this year. BSP, <laughs> Moto America, yeah. GP, World Superbikes. Yeah, they've stitched everybody up. So they can't be doing everything wrong, can they, <laughs> when, when you consider it? But it just seems to be on a wing and a prayer for me. I mean, uh, you know, the Yamaha cross, you know, four cylinders across the frame works really well at a lot of tracks. It works really well at all of the tracks to a degree, but the V4s are, are better in other places perhaps sometimes as well. I don't know. And with, again, with Yamaha not having the power of Patronus as a backup team this coming year, really, okay, it's still, you know, the Indonesia, the, sorry, the Malaysian-based team, but I, I can't, it, it doesn't seem to have the the power behind it that it had coming into to, to 2022. I mean, you, you've not going to have, you've not got the Quattararo Morbidelli factory Yamaha type setup that Sepang Racing had uh, over the last two or three years. You know, when we move into next year, Razan Razali's team is purely just a MotoGP team um, with a bit of a loss of personnel here and there. And we, we really still don't know quite how that team's going to work and how it's going to gel come next year. I think I don't understand why the Yamaha particularly, I mean, Honda obviously got stuff out there. I mean, let's, let's look at KTM. KTM's a good example. They lost concessions and they've slipped behind. You know, their, their, their development has slipped behind. What are they going to bring at the beginning of next year? I mean, you can be damn sure KTM are working overtime at the moment trying to trying to get something through the through the engineering pipe to to enhance their early season test. But it, it feels like it's a it's going to be a frantic Malaysia. I mean, Sepang is going to be I might take an Aldi out there, just go and watch it. Yeah. <laughs> I think that'll be worth watching. Um, it's cool. We, we, really will we know how ex- we know how exciting 2022 is going to be. It's also going to uh, field a few rookies as well. And I thought we should touch on how the rookies uh, did out there because we saw uh, Fabio Di Antonio, fastest rookie, um, Ralph Fernandez, Rebbi Gardner making the step up. Of course, their first proper goes in anger i know they've already had a test on, on the bike but you know first long haul test i suppose um brad binder as well darren binder i should say i'm gonna keep doing that on it darren binder was going well but he suffered a bit of a high side what did you make of some of the the rookies in action out there pete 
Well, I guess the surprise is Gigi Antonio being the fastest, wasn't it? I think, you know, nobody would have seen that. I mean, just on the fact that the Tectoir guys had done that sort of one day at Mizano, that, that gives them a bit of a head start. And Gigi Antonio, he was, I think, well, seventh in the Moto2 standing. So, you know, he wasn't the top guy on paper coming mm. up, but he, he certainly adapted pretty well, isn't he? So I think that was that was a bit of a surprise. Also, the Grassini team, it's new. Obviously, they're splitting with the Prilia. So there's a lot of changes going on there. It's not just, you know, a rookie rider coming in. They've got a new manufacturer. They're putting the team together and everything else. Uh, riding the GP21. So they're on the bike that basically Banyaya finished the season on. And that's what they'll race throughout next year. So, yeah, great performance by them. As you say, Darren Binder, obviously a lot of eyes on him, jumping straight from Moto3. And, you know, in fairness, what, three seconds off the pace or something? He did have that big high side, a cold tyre high side, the sort of classic you know, thing that can catch out rookies. He slowed down to let a faster rider by, basically. He did it for the right reasons, if you like. But then in he goes to, the, to some of the corners afterwards and gets thrown off. But he did come back and go quicker. So he showed that, you know, and I think Razan Rosani said, he showed that, you know, he could overcome that setback and, and still go faster. So I think pretty encouraging by all of them, really, all the rookies. I mean, they were never going to be at the front of the field in, in, in this sort of test, especially with these windy conditions, as Keith says, that people were saying was pretty much on the limit for riding. Sometimes you get on a new bike, you know, and it gels with you straight away. You know, sometimes you can turn up at a test and you've got a brand spanking new bike, you get on it and it works and you're in love with it immediately. Another time, and that might be the case for one or two of these guys, you get on the bike and you think, oh my God, what have I signed up to? And that is going to be a real slog. And that's when you need testing. You know, like, again, I know I'm banging this drum a bit hard at the moment, but, you know, rookies need test time. They need need plenty of time on bike. You need mileage to make this work for them, particularly somebody like Darren Binder. You know, Binder coming up from Moto3, particularly with the reputation he's got at the moment, he's got a double-edged sword going on. He's got all the... The, the constraints that his head's trying to stop him from making a bloody idiot of himself by knocking someone else off or, you know, hurting himself early on unnecessarily. Um, but he's also got the fact that he's, he's, he's got this chance and it might be a one-time chance to, to get on and, and make the transition from Moto3 mm. straight onto MotoGP. Can he do it a better job than Jack, you know, Miller did when he jumped up? That's a big, big ask. I mean, Jack struggled with it for a while. Um, before getting coming to terms, and Jack's one of the you know top MotoGP riders now, so there's no reason why Binder can't do it. But we'll wait and see whether he can. Um, I still think that, that that from a rookie point of view, you know, if you you get on a brand new bike, Digi obviously got on that bike, liked it, but a lot of the reason behind that will be the fact that you know the bike is well sorted, and the technicians will know how to set that bike up in a way that would work for him immediately. And then they'll get to, to giving it his edginess a little bit later on uh, in the test, I suspect. So, um, it was a little, you know, sometimes you've got a good team around you, you've got a good motorbike under you, and they know how to to bring those elements together in a test. You, you know, you go away from there feeling just, what a great way to go into your Christmas holidays. You know, <laughs> he's, he's the fastest rookie. He's had a good time. He got on well with the bike. He's going to be the happiest bloke. And doesn't it just show how far the Ducati's come? That a Jerez, this tight, twisty track, where I, obviously you know Jack and ba- and Banyaya were one and two this year, but I think before that it was what Casey Stoner was the last guy to win in a Ducati. I mean, it was it's the exact opposite of what traditionally but you that, would call a Ducati track. Worry. That's my yeah, worry. exactly, Valencia. and it just it I mean, just shows, doesn't it? They made such a Valencia, step. you know, like a go kart track where you would never have thought that. Although Ducatis had performed well at Valencia previously, but. Yeah, I, I'm worried about the the way it's 
it's headed to some extent with Yamaha not producing what you thought they might have produced for the RF test with Ducati having eight bikes, eight riders and a massive amount of momentum in the technical department heading forward into 2022. But again, at the end of it all comes the constraints of the actual rules. You know, those they are so incredibly tight that, you know, I think as, as Danny said, you know, the rules constrain any developments really. It's only these surprises that somebody like Gigi Delinia and his hordes of um, very clever people manage to drag out of the box every other week. Yeah, you look at the bike, it looks like it should be going through space. I don't know about going around a racetrack. It doesn't look like a motorbike anymore. It looks like, you know, I know back to Thunderbird 5. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Go back to, it looks like Thunderbird 5. <laughs> look it up, folks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think people could just about get that. You're not too bad with your age there, Keith. Um, let, let's just sort of finally finish on this. And it's just a thought coming off. I know you've been talking about testing and limited testing time, and that's. You know, that's been the case, you know, take Formula One, for instance, they've been slashing that for years. And it's, you know, I think they get they get seven days, I think, is in total of their preseason for 2022. Um, but, and this is something I think Bagnaia and a few other riders brought up uh, in terms of, you know, being able to get a, a super license for, for MotoGP and things like that. And if you look at that in Formula One, drivers have to do, um, I think it's a, a 500 kilometer uh private test to get their super license if they haven't achieved enough of points in um junior formula but that's still crucial testing time that is pounding laps round a track practicing pit stops practicing all this kind of thing is there is there something like that that can be done in moto you know in motorbike racing do you know are there are, what's the deal with private testing or you know in terms of you know limited testing time that can just give riders even if it's on an old bike you know more time on track i think the thing is that most of these guys have gone around grand prix tracks they know what they're doing with with regard to that uh, the youngsters coming through i think we're making the formula one indycar if you like analogies where you've got to do the mileage just because they're not up to speed with cars of that type and the mm. way that they run and the technicalities that go with them um although having said that probably not as daft as I might be thinking it is because the amount of things now that you've got to control on the handlebars of a MotoGP bike are getting very close to like a steering wheel on a, on a Formula One car. I mean, when I wouldn't be able to drive a Formula One car <laughs> because there's so much crap you've got to remember while yeah. someone's, and, and, and someone's talking to you as well, um, which we're all used to as broadcasters, of course. But but the fact is, is that you've got so many things to think about in a Formula One car and so many distraction, distractions that have got to feel like second nature. With motorbikes, up to, up to recent times, that's not been the thing. You get on a motorbike, you know the track. We don't do sim rate, you know, you don't, you don't do simulators as such like a lot of the car racers do. Although having said that, they do do simulators in as much as, you know, everybody knows which way every track goes. And simulators, you know, PS5 or whatever it might be nowadays are so good. They, even the trees and the track furniture and the stuff like that that's in that, that, those packages are actually accurate. So, you know, when you, when you jump on your, your simulator back at home, your PS5 or whatever platform you're working off, they're really, really, really good. You know, it's, it's, it's remarkable. Even the bumps in the track, they, they're, they're based on real things. So... And and I know that that all your all your riders play on these. Even Valentino Rossi, even Valentino Rossi, you know, up until when I last spoke to him was on the stage of the of the Day of Champions at Silverstone, and and I asked him the question: Do you still do 
what all the youngsters do? Do you still do you watch every footage? Do you watch back every race? And he's and he looked at me like I've got two heads and said, Of course, you know, <laughs> it's preparation, which makes him even more remarkable at 40, 41 years old as he was when I last spoke to him on stage. Um, you know, that he still sits in his motorhome, his back room, wherever he, he is. Uh, I mean, we all know how hard it is to do prep when you're watching hours and hours of whatever we're covering. You know, I, even though I'm not doing any of it anymore, I will still watch every single session. And it drives my family insane because <laughs> you sit there for hours watching every, you've got all the paperwork around, you've got a computer with the timing screens on, you've got the telly with the what's going on. I don't even need that anymore. I'm not at trackside anymore. <laughs> you do it. It's just, just sad now, isn't it? No. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> I resemble that remark. <laughs> no, it, never, it, never. But it, 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 is the, it is the way it is. And I think that, I would have normally just knocked that back out, out the park regarding the Formula One analogy, but I do think that there is a lot of time spent now in that in that kind of, and maybe a super license will be the way that it will go in future. A lot depends on how Darren Binder makes it work. Jack Miller made that jump. It's going to be interesting to see if Darren Binder equips himself acquits himself well, then no. But I can see if if it's, it becomes the norm. I mean, Jack did it. And everybody went, oh, that's, you know, worst thing you could have done to a youngster. And it kind of worked out, not quite as quickly as I think that some people might have thought he would. And and some people thought he would fail miserably, but he hasn't. Now we'll see what Darren Binder is capable of doing. And that might open the floodgates. You might see people jumping over Moto2 now. Um, back in the time when Jack Miller did it, if I can just clear that a little bit, it was uh, it, the, the jump from Moto3 to Moto2 wasn't a big jump. Moto3 to MotoGP was. Now, Moto3 to Moto2 is quite a big jump because the latest 765s with the electronics on it and the 765 Triumph motors and everything else on it, Moto2 is closer to MotoGP and further away from Moto3. Um, so I can see more people looking at, well, let's cut out the middle. You know, If, we, if you've got a super talent like Acosta, um, don't forget they're going to be older anyway soon because you're not going to be 16-year-old. You're going to be 18-year-old before you can actually get a license at all to go Grand Prix racing because mm. we've had the latest, you know, rules changes regarding ages and, and, and the like to address the disasters that we've had this last year. Um, so it, they're, they're going to be older anyway. So I can see a lot more riders and a lot more teams exercising that jump from Moto3 to MotoGP in future because of the age situation. They're going to want to, they're going to think that their riders are a little bit more mature and can handle a MotoGP bike technically and in their head more so there might be more of those jumps so you may have that super license harry that you're talking about and it's just taken me about 10 minutes to answer that very simple question <laughs> that's <laughs> when i know i've asked a good question <laughs> <laughs> no it's when i can't think of the answer straight away <laughs> yes 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 yeah <laughs> keep talking <laughs> i guess the only the only problem with that is that maybe Dorna and people, they won't want people skipping Moto2, you know, that maybe they'll be like, well, hang on a minute, you know, you should be going through Moto2 to MotoGP. And as far as the super license, I think when the riders were asked, they were sort of saying, well, okay, Moto3 to MotoGP is, is questionable, should we say, you need to be the right person and, and let's see how it gets on with Darren. But also there's been a lot of riders, Fabio Quattararo being the obvious one, that have come through Moto2 without a stunning record, 
and been great in MotoGP. And you've got to be careful not to freeze those guys out. So mm. it, it's China. It, it's hard to put exact. It's a bit like Danny Aldridge in the rules. It's hard to put exact <laughs> words and numbers to who should be a MotoGP rider. But I think we have seen a lot, the manufacturers have a lot of control with things like wild cards, don't they? And we, we've had situations in the past where they maybe entered a wild card or a, or a replacement rider that really wasn't, you know, they'd never been on a bike before, a MotoGP bike before. And I think that there's, it's sort of been agreed amongst them that, look, we won't put anyone forward in future that hasn't at least done a MotoGP test. So I think there's things like that that the manufacturers can can sort of sort out without the need to actually put a license in place. And I guess just just one other thing, of course, there is a rookie test at Sepang that, that, that the rookies will be eligible for. So they will get an extra three days at Sepang. There's two tests at Sepang. There's what they call the shakedown, which is for test riders, for rookies and for non-concession teams, which is Aprilia. So that's three days. So the rookies will get those three days and then they'll also get the official test, which is which starts literally the following week. And that's a two-day test for everybody. So, But that's literally the only ex- extra track time that the rookies will get compared to anyone, everyone else. One week in between, they won't even got past their blisters. <laughs> you know, three three days at Sepang. Hell of a track, Sepang, to be to be at. I mean, that's there's some fast old turns there. It's a it's a it's a quick old place to be going around Sepang. I mean, brilliant, but they will be sweating like they've not before. It's a yeah. We are talking Southeast Asia. We you know even on a good day, it's going to be humid. It's going to be very very warm. It's a tough three days. I've said it before. I mean, I think all these riders are remarkable. They fly mm. out. They fly out 12-hour flight, 12-and-a-half-hour flight or whatever it is into Malaysia now. Um, and they land, you know, jet lag to hell, test the next day. By the time they get to the third day when they're going to be wanting to bang that really, really impressive time in, you're absolutely knackered. Two or three days off, you know, you have a massage and sort yourselves out. I mean, obviously, you know, these, these guys are mega, mega, mega fit now compared with the old days. But... Um, but it's still an incredibly, incredibly hard week, really tough week. And they will fall down. You know, like the point is, is from Valentino Rossi backwards. I mean, I, I remember when, when they changed tyres to Michelin. I'd never seen so many crashes. I was in Malaysia. I was at Sepang when, when that first tyre test came in for Michelin, when they swapped from Bridgestone to Michelin. I'd never seen so many crashes with some big names because it went from... Bridgestone, which had the best front tyre in the entire world at that time and not such a great rear tyre, so you could spin it up, but you could rely on the front for everything. It went slightly, the the balance changed where the Michelin tyre was more in tune with its rear tyre, if you like, and the front didn't have quite as much grip as the Bridgestone did. And and they hadn't sorted the bikes out at that point, and there was disaster. There was millions and millions of pounds worth of damage um, laying at the side in Sepang. So... It's a tough few weeks. Don't ever think that these guys have got it easy because they really, really don't have. And I think that with the competition ramping up, it's going to be tough for someone like Darren Binder. I mean, should I feel sorry for Darren? No, he's got a massive opportunity. And I'm, I'm, you know, all of us are going to be really pleased to see if he makes it work for himself. But he does have a reputation he's got to get over. Um, and he's only going to be able to do that by being a consummate professional, by being, you know, grafting and being a real professional. He's got his brother he can rely on for for that kind of moral support as well and the, and the feedbacks that, that you need as a MotoGP rider. So he, I won't say he's got an advantage because I don't think that's the case, but um, it, he's, he's going to have to go about it in a methodical and incredibly professional way, um, chucking it up the street and being slightly damaged a day into your, your rookie test is not um, what you need to be doing. So hard not to, of course. Well, 
the countdown uh, to Christmas and to 2022 MotoGP is well and truly on. Um, I think our thanks uh, go to Danny Aldridge as well for, for joining us and for giving us his time. What an amazing insight as well. And uh, I'm sure if you want to read more about that, we'll have it up on Crash.net as well in various bits and bobs and forms. Um, but Keith Ewan, Pete McLaren, thank you very much as ever. We shall return with you um, regularly one more time next week uh, for all the latest MotoGP chat. Uh, you can keep up to date with everything, of course, on Crash.net. Any questions, send them in all the usual ways, comments, section tweet instagram facebook us or just search crash moto gp uh, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts as well and we shall see you right back here next week and then once again if you missed it last time we're monthly uh, through the off season until we kick uh, start again in march back to our for uh, a month um, but until next week bye-bye Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details normally being a little extra might be a bit much but not when it comes to healthcare. that's why united healthcare's health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs learn more at uh1.com hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.